In episode 11 of Complementary Training Podcast, I'm talking to Israel Halperin. Israel is a PhD candidate and a Muay Thai coach from Tel Aviv, Israel, who I met in Canberra while he was with Australian Institute of Sport. Israel is someone with the skin in the game, to paraphrase Nassim Taylor. Someone who has walked the walk as a Muay Thai fighter and continues to do so by training competitive athletes in Muay Thai and boxing, as well as doing his PhD. Hence, he is the guy who can talk two languages, coach language and researcher language. I believe he is a true gem in this field. In the following episode, we have discussed numerous topics, ranging from agile periodization, co-founders in training research, dealing with uncertainty and many others. The format was more of a casual chat between two friends, which we are, rather than an interview. I'm pretty sure it will make you think. Before we switch to the chat with Israel, I want to thank our sponsor Smartabase for making this episode possible. Here is a small commercial break and we are back to Israel. Enjoy the listen. Smartabase is a truly unique athlete data management solution for pro teams, colleges, Olympic sports, the military, performing arts and research. Smartabase encapsulates the ability to integrate all forms of data from many different sources of technology such as GPS, Omega Wave, Elite Form and many others. It has unparalleled reporting features, offering the user access to any data in the system within three clicks of the mouse. Most importantly, it is a customizable platform that you develop based on your needs and workflows for your data. With support teams based in the USA, UK and Australia, Smarterbase is in over 150 organizations in more than 10 countries. If interested, email info at fusionsport.com. Hi Israel, and thanks for joining us today. Without further ado, let's get straight into the interesting topics. Uh, it seems that we are back to the square one when it comes to training periodization. What what has changed over time, and uh, what is your take on it? Exactly, nothing has changed for from my view. Nothing has changed. It's just it just to me, you know, you work with an athlete and you see what happens, and you let the program emerge based on a number of principles and your understanding of the situation and what the coach has to say and whether he's injured or not and all these different factors. But yeah, I just don't I, know. yesterday, last night, I just finished a book called Why from. Kleinberg, so I think it's Susan or something like that, Kleinberg, called Why, about causality. And she talks about, you know, problems with causality and the big data and all this stuff. And um, the, the way we create this type, type level of causality, like a, a, a group type of effect, and then dealing with, she calls that a token causality, when we're dealing with a single case. Um, and it's pretty much... This group level of causality, like the, the average effect, yada, 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 is really hard to apply to a, a single case. And in, in this particular example, we are talking about single athlete or your group of athletes. Um, it gives you some insight of you know poten- what, what could potentially happen. Uh, but then there's all these third variables or the missing variables from the model uh, yes. that only you as a coach can actually see. So... You need, to put, you need to put these predictions and, and ideas about causality in, in your own um, subjective artistic mind as a coach 
Um, and that's that's say, a beautiful need, way of saying it. It's and a you beautiful need to way of saying it. Experiment it. So you need to experiment, see what's going to happen. So that's generally the idea behind, I would say, my, but um, I don't want to sound like a guru or something like my <laughs> agile periodization thing where you start with the idea how things work and you, uh, you test it, see what happens. You know, it, it's pretty much it. All this tremendous amount of scientific data and everything, it doesn't give you any confidence what's going to happen. It might give you some insight, um, what you can probably expect, and that can kind of constrain your options a little bit, which is good. Um, but still, there, there's a lot of things that are not covered in, a, in, in, in papers or science. For, for example, one thing, like to, to have a certain causality. So in, in randomized controlled trials, you, you only implement one intervention, so one type of intervention, and assess the effect of that intervention on probably only one thing. But that never freaking happened in, in practice. So the external validity, uh, so applying it to your own group might be uh, might be biased. So, for example, you always test multiple uh, interventions, and you are dealing with multiple things at, at one time. So, maybe that intervention you plan doing gonna affect um, other things in a positive or negative way. So, things might evolve completely differently than you expected. So that's that's a, yes. that's the idea behind this com complex system. Um, so yeah, I mean, research is pretty good. Uh, it gives you some some uh, insight how things might happen, and on the average, pretty much. But uh, as a coach, you're pretty much left alone in this uncertain world. And then, you, as you said, you need to test it, use your subjective stuff, and pretty much that's it. Man, that's a truly a wonderful explanation. What you just uh, what you just said, I really enjoyed it. And I think just as you were talking. It just made me think how instead of talking about specific type of periodization programs, for example, we should instead as a field perhaps focus our discussion on what is a cause and effect. What is even causality? You know, this is something that we take for granted and we just assume it. And uh, we just assume that, yeah, we, if, we, if we obey a certain, uh, a certain research uh, methodologies, then we can assume a cause and effect relationship. But what is that cause and what conditions do we need to follow? And what's interesting is that lately I've been trying to search and read up about causality from a philosophical point of view, from an epidemiological point of view, from any perspective that I could find. And what amazed me is even to this state, they can agree upon a, a criteria that right. everybody – and I was like, wow, that's unbelievable because we just take it for granted. For example, in exercise science, we just assume causality. We just use that language when we do an RCT, for example, or an intervention study. But then when you even look at, at, the, at uh, what's happening these days, what criteria do we use? They can't even agree upon that. And to me, that's like a missing link and something that's so important to discuss before moving on. And that brings us back to what we just talked about, for example, uh, some different models of periodization that essentially they assume a cause and effect relationship. But based on what, you know? Then you're going to love this book. <laughs> that's, oh, uh, yeah, it's that's pretty much a philosophical book going through, um, first of all, the, I think, Aristotle definition of causality and then Hume, two definitions of causality. Uh, but I don't want to bore people uh, with, with that. But it's quite quite interesting book if you're dealing with you know science. And as I said, it seems that we are you know back to a square one. I I couldn't agree more. And that to me is why I find it a bit frustrating reading either about 
uh, especially about these these training models that, that that's their underlying assumption and I just challenge that assumption because I don't really understand I mean yes you can do an RCT and that and, and you can do a randomized control trial with a placebo group that's double blind and all that but there's still some missing aspects that we need to account for and then as you say the second way we, we include another variable whichever one it may be, whichever, however small or big it may be, you're automatically introducing in a, a potential interaction. And we can't even predict for the life of us what that interaction might lead to. So as you say, that, that the, the science that, that we do can only hint, provide hints and, uh, and a sense of direction. But that's the, and then, like you said, we're left with the degrees of uncertainty and the practical sense that we just have to experiment and just try to be aware of the limitations of these models, and this, and also I, I believe have to have a strong understanding of the cognitive biases that we're all uh, so prone to, because that could easily just manipulate our perception of uh, the situation even more. So I think probably one of the best line of defense is just to to be aware of it, to be aware of the enemy that could so easily impact our perception of the situation of a given situation. Yeah, accept the chaos. <laughs> pretty much yeah exactly uh, so but one thing they mentioned in a book is the um, medical field and um, the R R rcts or randomized controlled trials in medical field uh, doesn't help you predict interaction with potential um, other medications you're using you know because there are yeah. numerous combinations uh, what they do is they, they track uh, some of the patients and i think they have some type of a database and any type of like um, weird cases and someone experiencing some, you know, side effects, that's being reported to um, a medical practitioner and they have a database and and then later they can mine things. So, and the point is that, um, and, and she's also making that point in a book, is that uh, RCTs, uh, even if they're like a gold standard, uh, sometimes they don't, they cannot prove you causality. And sometimes mm. just correlation between the data or the, just the big data or, or, observational data can give you sometimes more insight in, in a causal factors. So RCT is a, still a gold standard, but uh, sometimes not enough. And sometimes other things are more uh, interesting. So now we, yeah, have these, uh, yeah, now we have all these devices where you can track your caloric intake, you know, the movement and all this stuff. And once, once we have this big, big data, then you can mine that data to get some of the insight. So it doesn't necessarily need to be RCT. But even with this big data, we need to be interested, why is this working? Not only, okay, this is the case, and, you know, that's pretty much it. Because what she's also saying is that uh, even if you know, um, you know, even if you figure out the correlation, whatever, uh, to make interventions, we need to know why certain things are working. So we need to get some ca causal insights um, because even if you know the even if you know the correlations, all that stuff, once we try to intervene in the real world, which is unpredictable, having some mechanistical sort of like causal ideas of how things might work, might evolve, might protect us protect us from uh, side effects of the intervention. And we all know that mm -hmm. there's a different public policies that um, had a good intention but ended up being you know shitty and creating another issues. Um, and she's quoting one, one intervention they had in New York City or New York State, where they figured out that the smaller classes in schools yield better um, students. And what they did, they, they, I think they, they 
create a, I won't say they force schools, but they create some incentive for schools to, to create smaller classes. And what it ended up being is they create a massive need for teachers, and then they ended up hiring teachers that are unexperienced. Uh, so the, the point is that um, even if you know how things work from randomized control trials, you know, we are still in an unpredictable world where our mm. intervention based on RCT ideas can still, you know, backfire. And that's that's yes. pretty much periodization. We believe certain things are working as in a certain way, but once you implement that in a real world, it can, you know, goes to shit. Yeah, and that's a really good point. And even just to continue with that line of thinking is that usually in our field in the exercise sciences you typically attack a problem from a certain perspective so if you're an exercise physiologist to understand cardiovascular adaptations and so forth that's going to be your angle if you're going to be an snc person then you, you and and so forth but then a lot of the times from my experience is that those don't have a deeper understanding of other angles and how they may interact. So as an example, I've got a bit of background in SNC, but then when I did my PhD, I learned a fair bit about uh, motor learning, which I didn't have as much experience beforehand. And then a lot of the things that I've used to do before that point, all of a sudden I was shocked with all the new information I was learning about motor learning and how that interacted with my understanding of SNC and how everything changed for me just from a short brief introduction of a of a different field so to speak even though it's under the same umbrella so uh, a lot of the times i think our field lacks from a, a, perhaps a broader appreciation of other disciplines and then they don't only there's not only an additive effect there might be an interaction so it's not just two plus two it's, it might be two times two and then we don't even know what could happen even within a given field, let alone what you just, uh, with uh, the example you provided, we don't even know how that might all interact in the real world. So, yeah, just just keep accepting. I mean, we always get back to point one, which is that we have to accept the degrees of uncertainty that's going to be involved. And we just got to be very careful with the assumptions to make, especially the causal ones. Yeah. The, you're, you're mentioning that, um, you know, we have all these domain-specific experts. Reminds me of other yes. other you know industries. For example, how do how do Google hire people? So they usually hire people with um, they usually hire generalists. So people who can look at the same problem from different views. And I'm just listening one book um, about the Google HR, and they mention some some of that some of that stuff because they want to hire you know different experts having different viewpoints. Um, and they can easily teach them pretty much how to solve a specific problem, but they they have a different viewpoints and they can see things slightly differently. Um, so I guess that's that's one of the uh, one of the big plus. Anyway, the one thing that I really admire you is that uh, you are a, you you were an athlete. You were competing in kickboxing or Muay Thai. Uh, you are a coach, and you are a researcher. So you, you are someone who has the skin in the game. And that's pretty admirable. Um, you know, you're you're responsible for the athletes, uh, and you're also actually you know studying stuff. And uh, you know that that's not unfortunately really common in in uh, in the industry. Either you are a, a, a you know pencil neck lab coat or a muscle head, and yeah. somehow you ended up being both. 
It's true, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's a suppose a fair point. Um, to be fair, when I was at the AIS at the, up until recently, I got to say that there's a fair few uh, sport scientists who practice what they preach. Usually, most of the scientists over there do have a, an extensive background in sport, which actually makes them better sports scientists. But yeah, to me, that's a given. I think if you're going to be working with athletes, you should have at least some degree of experience. There's no need to be an elite level athlete to do that. In fact, I would argue that some of the best coaches in the world, at least in my field, in the combat sports field, were never really the best. I know for, for a fact that I wasn't even close to being uh, the best, but I was a reasonable athlete and I thought that helped me uh, conduct better science. And and uh, yeah, so I definitely agree that there's that, that's what you want to find a happy medium between uh, between the two to uh, take advantage of both worlds. Yeah, and I should add that being an at, I mean, being a coach uh, during my PhD period helped me complete the PhD a lot faster because I used that my the athletes I trained I used them as participants, and it was a really nice flow because I, coaching them would give me ideas for studies. And then the studies will give me ideas of what I want to do with them. So it was a good feedback loop system that kept going for the time that I was there. When And you know, I haven't been there for, I've been into AIS for roughly two and a half years and I've completed a fair few studies. And mainly it was, it was because of that, mainly because the athletes I used to coach agreed to participants. And as we, every scientist will tell you that the ultimate bottleneck to conducting studies is just getting participants. A lot of the PhD students they just get stuck because they can't find enough participants. It's a very difficult task. People they, don't want to volunteer for these studies. Did they agree or you made them? Well, given that uh, ethically, uh, they they, I, I couldn't force them. So I have to tell you that they've all happily agreed and wanted to volunteer and participate. Yeah, of course, I won't tell you that I forced them. And, uh, wink, wink. The, the question is how do, you know... How do you make it, uh, you know, double blind, or how do you make some of the athletes accept to be in a control group? Well, that's that's a good question, but I, frankly, I can't even answer it because, whenever possible, I'll try to make it a within study design because, if possible, it's a more powerful design. There's less variability, and because, anyways, when I work with when I uh, conduct a study with elite athletes, there's no way I could I could do a between subject design just because i won't have athletes to these uh, studies to these athletes and in fact i even published a few case studies just on one person because i've tried to uh, conduct as many of my studies using uh, competitive athletes and i don't have to explain how difficult it may be to recruit but then if we were trying to get 20 per cell that would be impossible so yeah i'd always try all of my studies to this date have always been a within uh within group design it's just just naturally what happened. And because my studies de dealt with uh, the effects of feedback, it would, it, it would just lend itself quite, quite, uh, quite well to this type of design. Hmm, that's interesting. But one question I also have is that because you're sitting between two worlds, um, the, like, let's say you become contrarian pretty much because you, you get in an argument with the scientist saying, you know, this doesn't work in practice. And then also dealing with coaches who sometimes are not really well educated or doesn't understand a scientific method or whatever, 
Uh, then you get in a conflict with both sides. How, you know, how do you deal with that stuff? Well, I'll tell you what, with the coaches, what I've learned is that it is quite unfortunate that then if, at the end of the day, they're the bottleneck. They're the ones who's gonna, who are going to make the final call. So you could actually conduct some very good studies, some conduct some excellent research, but then the coaches just, just doesn't want to do it. And that's just that. They're the one who makes a final call, call. And I found that quite frustrating. And it really does depend on the coach. And there's not much that could be changed about it. They're either open to it and receptive or they're not. And this, of course, is just my experience, right? And some who are open to it, uh, and at least those that I've, uh, that I've worked with in the past, uh, I think it was quite, it's quite successful. People are open to it. First, it makes things even more exciting. So if nothing else, there's a big placebo effect. Even if the interventions have nothing of physiological benefit that, that we may think that exists, but the whole interaction and getting the athletes involved and everyone is on board, it adds a certain excitement and a placebo aspect to it that I think benefited everyone, just the excitement, myself included, we all enjoyed it. So to me, even as a standalone, that has a lot of benefit because the athletes, they're excited. They're, they think they're doing things that are scientific and it sounds cool to them and they feel empowered because they're backed up by science and all these things that tended to unfold and happen. Uh, my impression was that it was actually a big effect. It wasn't just this noise that helped them perform better. But before they fought, they felt, man, I have scientists from the AIS who have got my back, who have helped me. Whether this is true or not, it's besides, besides the point. But that helped them out. And at the end of the day, at least in combat sports, your state of mind it, uh, accounts for so much of the final outcome. If you walk into the ring and you feel so confident, and even I'll say the opposite as well, if your opponent knows that you've been working with the AIS or a scientist that gets inside their heads. So even without any physiological adaptations that I may think that I have identified in some of my research, even put that aside, if the coaches and athletes were receptive of what I was doing, that helped them a lot at the long run. They're more confident, they're happier, uh, they were more excited, it wasn't as boring, they're willing to explore, and just just the uh, the very fact that we're exploring some things is cool and interesting and keeps people motivated and happy. And unless you're happy and enjoying the whole process, then you're just going to get burnt out. And I've seen that happen time and time again. Oh, man, that, uh, I just uh, started writing one blog, blog piece this morning. And actually, you, you touched some of, some of the topics I covered. Uh, yesterday, I was sitting with oh, a man. friend of mine. He was a professional basketball player playing all around. Not NBA class, but a pretty decent class for uh, Europe leagues. Uh, so he played in Russian league and second and first division. And we were, you know, after training, we had a good fight at the training, um, lifting. And then, you know, as a group, we went for, uh, for you know, to, to have some lunch. And then we started chatting. So anyway, he was saying that in a couple of clubs, he ended up, you know, being a, a foreigner, being a Serbian, coming in. Um, the athletes are not hanging around, you know, they finish the practice, everything is, you know, pretty straight. The coaches are pretty restrictive, you know, you have to do this like this and this and uh, there's no fun at the practices. So, you know, being Serbian as he is, um, and we all like to party <laughs> pretty much. Hmm. So, yeah, so he started, uh, you know, organizing social activities and in, in quotation marks, social activities. By that mean, I mean, you know, get going to the club and getting drunk with the boys 
and then that ended up you know lifting up the the team atmosphere or cohesion of the team uh so they ended up having fun at the practices you know you know boys being boys you know having someone in the we call it in the machine just making fun of one guy and then you rotate the roles over time yes. so having fun enjoying practices enjoying games you know trusting each other um just you know building up a, a great cohesion some of the coaches didn't like it they 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 complained but they ended up playing really good and and my point that's amazing isn't it yeah and it's a team sport and my point is we pay so much attention to these high performance stuff like you know monitoring and all this stuff and sometimes we miss the elephant in the room and that's a team cohesion having a having fun as you mentioned just you know that's 100% pretty such a good example too and then also it brings us back to our previous points because what's the cause and effect here right how do we how do we do in our city to verify something like that maybe it'll be possible one day maybe not i'm not sure but this to me this example that you just provided really puts together all the points that we've been discussing because then if you if you're too too much of an expert and only one discipline then you're missing out on other important aspects just like the one you described and then how do we um how do we identify a, a causal relationship here it's so complex but yeah it's just i love that example and it makes so much more so much sense to me as an athlete i remember as well when i was training for example when i spent time in thailand there's no doubt that the thais are the best in their field and uh, they train very intensely and so forth but to me i just didn't enjoy training so much i was getting better yes but at the same time that as that my skill was getting better uh i w- I was I was getting more depressed and unhappy with how things were going. I just didn't enjoy it. And at the end of the day, while I got better, I also decided to quit after a point. So, yeah, there's all these factors you have to account for, but as you say the elephant in the room to me is just to keep people excited and happy about it and not just to get overly uh sophisticated with the physiological adaptations and all that and then you're just missing out on some of the most important aspects yeah. that uh in training right yeah, sometimes I, I, need have to, fun. I need to i need to warn against you know letting go letting go of the reins too much for example opposite thing is happening in soccer so uh sometimes they are just you know let's let's make the guys happy and you know playing with the yes. ball and uh fuck the hard work and same thing in the gym so they ended up you know doing stupid shit on the bossu balls and like yeah it's 100%. fun and yada yada so it it's not either you know it's a bloody grinder uh, and then you get bored to death uh, or it's a, a circus so it's you need to find a fine balance between the two 100% it's not a false dichotomy you're right and if that's what uh, we were alluding to or I was alluding to that was definitely not my point um, it, you definitely have to find a happy medium and not only that that's very athlete specific that's very athlete specific because if typically based on my experience you'd find some that are a bit more lazier and more relaxed and don't and they don't train as hard as some others so they need a more structure and so forth and then you have some athletes that are the exact opposite they're so disciplined and they work according to a very specific plan and they you know they just watch everything they do and just introducing some novelty some excitement some some downtime some new th- that to me is what I try to do with them and of course all within within reason nothing would have to be an either or approach that's a tricky thing to accomplish especially in a team settings because as a coach you need to have i don't know if you need to have one philosophy but you need to have a philosophy that suits different types of uh, you know personalities in the squad and now with uh, you know international players um, 
And Serbian, for example, in basketball, for Serbian, Serbian coaches are more, I would say, restrictive. Maybe, maybe not all of them, but most of them. Um, having a strict rules and, you know, dealing with practice in a certain, certain way. And then you might deal with American players uh, who are, you know, American, uh, American African origin. And they, they might, might demand different culture. You cannot yell at those guys or uh, mm. you cannot punish those guys. Things like that. So it might backfire. But then on the other side, do you as a coach approach each athlete differently? And then the group say, oh, this guy is just, you know, taking it easy on this player. So, uh, so, so much factors to consider. And it, that, that's why yeah. it's, it's art. That's why we have all these ex crazy good uh, coaches that, uh, you know, cannot explain with, with a PhD or research. Yeah, I'm with you on that. And you know what? Listening to you uh, talk about what you do in a team settings just confuses me so much. I don't have any experience working with uh, in team settings. I mean, I, w I would work with a group of athletes, but it's not a team sport, really. So I wouldn't even know what would the approach would be, really. I wouldn't even know. What? I find it difficult enough to go with uh, one athlete at a time, let alone if I had a group of them. Yeah, one one hint is that, uh, and again, I'm pulling some, some ideas from different industries. In this case, again, again Google. What they did is they pretty much get rid of the manager positions. Not pretty much, but uh, uh, they reduce this number of uh, I'm I'm a leader, you're a follower. So sometimes you just need to let let the group self-organize, let them decide mm. on certain things, make them involved. So, for example, in a hiring process in, in Google, what they what they do they uh, when they interview a, a potential candidate for a job, they also involve guys who are working under him. Not only guys who are in, in a board or whatever. So they are also involved involving guys who are gonna be working for him and working with him to decide if this guy is suited for a position. So uh, nowadays mm -hmm. you you know you just bring the coach in the club. You don't you don't ask athletes, is this guy gonna be good for our group, for our chemistry? You know, most of the clubs they don't consider that. So I would say, you know, and Maybe, maybe we should, maybe we should let athletes sometimes, you know, decide on on certain things. So, how how is this team's gonna work? What's what's our goal? You know, you you tell me. So, are we gonna be strict? Are we gonna be loose? You know, what what are the pros and cons? You know, what what are the punish? What are the rewards for certain behaviors? What are we gonna accept as a team? What are we gonna say? Fuck no, that this is no place in our team. And you you need to let the athletes collectively decide. On the accepted behaviors, uh, as opposed to someone telling them, "No, no, that's not right thing to do." You know, coming from the outside, pretty much from the coach. Man, that's that's a hundred percent. I'm with you on that. And not only that, I can tell you that there's a very strong um, scientific literature that will support that a hundred percent. And in fact, one of the studies that I've conducted. Uh, had to do with the effects of choices of providing athletes with choices and how that affected their performance. And before I uh, expand a bit on this study, just because I think it lends itself quite well to your uh, explanation, is that uh, uh, providing participants, providing humans with a choice, even insignificant small ones, seems to have a, a big effect on the pace and the effectiveness of their motor strategies. And there's a big body of uh, scientific literature showing that. And when I read it, I got excited and I found that to be so true and so cool that I've decided to dedicate one of my PhD studies to this very question. And I think, to the best of my knowledge at least, that study, which has been published by now, 
in a, in a psychological journal. The journal is called uh, Psychological Research. And I collaborated uh, with uh, Professor Gabriela Wolf from Las Vegas, who is uh, a world expert in motor learning. And what we have done is uh, just took uh, the group of athletes that I've worked with, and uh, we had them punch the punching integrator, which is a device that can measure uh, punching forces and punching velocities. So it's kind of, just think about what you'd see in a video game uh, room, that you can punch this uh, uh, device and give you your impact forces, but only this one is, is truly real. It actually gives you accurate values. And uh, what I had the athletes do is, is uh, either perform a punching protocol that uh, consists of 12 single punches. So let's say uh, three lead rights, I'm sorry, th three lead lifts, three uh, rear rights, three lead hooks, and three uh, rear hooks. And so they created this protocol, three straights, three straights, three hooks, and three hooks. They either uh, performed this protocol in a set order, or I let them decide the order of the punches that they want to deliver. So in both cases, in both uh, protocols, they delivered exactly the same amount of punches. The same type, everything was exactly identical, but only in one of the conditions, they were able to choose the order, and the other one, I chose it for them. And uh, I should also add that this protocol does not lead to any fatigue at all, because they get about 5 to 10 seconds between each punch, so it's not fatiguing. And uh, every time we ran this protocol, and I even tested a world champion with this protocol, and all of the athletes that participated were good athletes, good competitive athletes. Every time that we let them perform the protocol in a self-selected manner, they punched uh, harder and faster, and mainly faster. For reasons I still don't understand, it could have just been random. I don't know why the effect was so much bigger with their punching velocities. But the very fact of providing them a choice actually improved their performance. So this actually ties very well with uh, what you're seeing. And it ties very well with all the previous uh, literature showing that motor learning is significantly improved when participants receive a choice of some sorts. Now, just to have, uh, provide another small example is to, to explain how little of a choice we have to provide the athletes or participants with to have this incredible effect uh, is that in one study done by Gabriella Wolf, they had a, a between subject design and in both groups they, they, were, they got to practice uh, a golf uh, shooting task and they measured accuracy and both groups did exactly the same thing. They practiced the same amount of time, everything was consistent. The only difference was that one of the group got to choose the color of the golf ball compared to the other group. And just the very act of choosing the color of the golf ball, they improved their accuracy and their motor learning, which was, which was uh, measured in a, many different ways, but they actually improved their performance considerably more than the control group. So it just comes to show that even providing athletes or humans with small choices actually leads to big effects in both learning, and I think my study was maybe the first that shows that it affects performance. So yeah, it ties quite well with what you're saying. Yeah, it reminds me of my uh, dealing with my son sometimes. Um, if you tell him, you know, this is for dinner, and then he might complain. But if you tell him, um, do you want A or B? So he might choose, oh, I want to take B. And uh, rather than what, what do you want to eat? So you give him like mm. two or three fixed options and uh, pretty much constrained options. And then 
he might accept accept it much easier than if you say no no you're gonna eat b <laughs> i said no I, I want to eat a but if you tell him oh, what do you want you do you want a b or c he might, ah, i want i want b and then even if he complains mm -hmm. even if he complains you, you can say oh man you you choose this it's not me he chose that so <laughs> <laughs> that's a very effective strategy i keep that in mind for the day i'll have some children so pretty much uh so you also published one interesting study or uh, review can't remember uh, correctly to be honest i haven't read it I, I only read the abstract um about the confounders that might affect the um the effects of the of, of the study of the of the treatment um can you can you tell us yeah. more about it yeah yeah so the the dry title now uh, nowadays when i look back at it i think maybe we should give it a different title but it was uh, called the effect uh threats to internal validity and exercise science so in a sense, uh, internal validity is just a fancy way of saying, uh, did we fully account for all the possible variables that could have accounted for the results? So in a sense, again, we're back to causality here. How certain are we that the intervention is what caused the effect? And that's a variable, perhaps. And, um, and based on my experience uh, doing some studies and a um, fields because when i did my master's in canada i dealt with uh, neuromuscular fatigue and then when i moved to australia i became something completely different i noticed that people who came from specific backgrounds usually account for the variables that they understand the best so for example and people who've got a physiological background they will control for uh, room temperature for uh, time of the day for uh, nutrition for hydration and other factors that they understand. And in fact, I think this is mostly true in all of the exercise sciences. But then they might not account for other variables that there is a big body of uh, literature showing that it could easily impact performance to, to a significant effect. And I've noticed based on my, again, that's something that I've ex I saw with my own eyes I, and, and how, for example, instructions or the number of people in the room and variables that I will perhaps explain about in a minute, but how these very powerful variables were not accounted for in some of the studies that I've been involved with or I participated. And it got me thinking, which led me to uh, write this review. So uh, these overlooked confounding variables in exercise science include, for example, uh, music or a radio. So I, rem I remember being involved in some studies either as a participant or just helping out with the data collection that the radio was on. And uh, sometimes, obviously, we have got no control over the music being played. And if the, the measurement is a sensitive measurement, for example, for measuring uh, muscle activation or maximal force, we know there's a fair bit of literature showing that music could easily affect performance uh, to a, a considerable amount. And then if there's, a, if for instance, a very, uh, I don't know, song that's being played on the radio during testing that the participants likes very much that could easily affect his or her performance improve it or decrease it if it's a song that she that they hate so uh i've noticed that that tends to happen a fair bit of time and people don't account for it as much so that is for example a very clear uh confounding variable that is not usually accounted for as much as it should be because uh as I explained, we know that music affects performance. So either you play the same music all the time or there's no music at all. But whatever it is you do, you have to control for it. So therefore, radio is never a good idea or a, or a random playlist. 
uh, that's an easy one. Some other ones are, uh, uh, for example, how many people are in the room? And that's harder to control for because at the laboratory, things happen. People move, take equipment. Sometimes you're, uh, you're collecting data on your own. Sometimes you got another scientist there with you. But the number of observers in a room watching uh, the uh, participant perform could easily affect their performance, independent of the, of the intervention. So if on one day, there's only one investigator uh, asking you to perform, let's say, uh, a maximal jump or a number of uh, bench presses to, rip, uh, to failure with an X amount of, uh, of weight. If there's two people in the room, you might perform better than if there's one, and that goes on. And there's actually a dose-effect rela dose relationship. The more people in the room, and this, again, has been shown before, the more people in the room, the more uh, people tend to perform better and vice versa. And also there's a gender effect as well. So if there's females in the room, males will obviously perform better. Again, this has been shown. Uh, but vice versa may not always be the case. It might actually... So there's other variables like that, that given that in our field, in exercise science, the samples tend to be very small. And that's a problem that, that exists. We, we, we're well aware of it. Especially, for example, when I did my uh, PhD uh, on athletes, I've got only a handful of athletes. So I got to be sure at least as certain as, as, as I possibly can, that I've fully accounted for as many confounding variables as I possibly can. So my degree of certainty that the intervention is what caused the effect is quite high. And therefore, that's why I always try to make sure uh, in my studies that I either I'm the only one in the room or there's someone with me. And whichever the decision uh, it is, I make sure it's consistent throughout. And that goes the same for the music, uh, and other variables, and, and also very importantly, the instructions. The instructions, I would also argue that uh, the effects that instructions or feedback have on performance, probably one of the most uh, investigated topic in exercise science. I think uh, studies comparing external to internal focus uh, conditions, there's got to be over a hundred of them that have shown quite um, consistently that external instructions in which uh, I instruct a person to focus on something that's external to the self leads to better performance compared to internal instructions in which one uh, is focused on a certain body part or a muscle group or anything to do with the self. Yet when we, if we alternate between these type of instructions, when we conduct studies, we can easily introduce a very powerful confounder. And uh, so yeah, that's something I recommended in that study that uh, you should always try to be as transparent as you possibly can with everything that you've done in your experiment. So if someone wants to replicate it, it's not going to be a challenge and uh, because they can use the same instructions, the same type of feedback, the same number of participants in the room and so forth. And that'll make re replication a lot easier, which as is uh, qu quite difficult given the small samples and so forth. That remind me, reminded me of a situation we had in, uh, when I was in Sweden. Uh, I, I had the boys after maybe a losing streak for the last couple of games. Uh, you know, the atmosphere in, uh, in the gym was pretty shitty. Um, I had to pretty much whip them to, to squat. And then um, we had a, a, a girl visiting, a pretty good-looking girl actually, visiting our, our um, head physiotherapist for, I don't know what... <laughs> He's probably going to give me a ring after this one if he hears it. Um, <laughs> and then the boys saw her, and they, they started behaving like monkeys, man. Just like, 
you know, competing <laughs> who's going to squat more and yelling. And I was like, you know what? Maybe I don't want to sound sexist, but uh, maybe I, we can hire someone, some good looking girl to <laughs> just, you know, randomly pass by um, when we are in the gym. So I might get much better effects in, in strength than anything else. So it's, yeah, yeah. it's funny to mention. But also, on, on the in other, other scenario I had is um, in Aspire in uh, Qatar. And as we all know, it's a boys' school. And there's no girls in the school. And, you know, I, sometimes I wonder how these boys get the motivation to train, sometimes twice a day. Mm. And there's no girls to watch them. So if you're, yeah. you know, w- when we were in a high school or elementary school, you know, you went to play basketball or, or soccer because certain girls were there and they were looking at you. So yeah, you wanted to impress, of course. <laughs> exactly right. So kicking that that type of motivation out, especially in that age when when you're hitting the you know puberty, um, you know, not sure how they deal with that stuff. That's a good point. And again, it's just important for me to keep doing what I've been doing throughout this discussion. Is just to tie it back to what we discussed originally is that there's just too many variables and it's it just goes way beyond just the physiological relaying of things. It's not just about muscle fiber and muscle mass and all this. To get these outcome measures, there's just all these variables you got to be well aware of that they do influence performance and learning and, and uh, how consistent people are with their training. And this is just one of these examples that I, I imagine to be a very powerful uh, intervention or an effect of something that could easily, like you said, you were wondering how could they find a motivation to train, and, and I'm with you in that. So it's just it's just a complex environment and a complex situation, and the more we accept it, the better off we are. I agree completely. Uh, let's let's uh, switch the the topic a little bit from from the research to you know practical application. Either you know even if I believe this is quite practical. Um, You've been mentioning that you did, did a, 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 if I remember correctly from our discussion while I was in Qatar, um, a peaking study where you measured a couple of um, strength indications for a, a particular fighter and then measured the, the punching power. Um, and then you had some interesting insight. Um, and we also had a good discussion when I was in, in um, visiting you in Canberra regarding you know we we do so many of these you know strength testing and we believe that uh, uh if you increase your squat you're gonna increase you know jumping or or punching or kicking or if you increase your isometric mid-type pool you're gonna be a, you know a more explosive uh, puncher or you know bench throw um, and things like that so can you can you tell us um more about this as a as a researcher and as a coach you know what what's your what's your viewpoint on you know having all these measures and trying to peak all these measures and then at the end of the day they might not affect how strong you punch or how how well you perform in the ring yeah yeah i could easily discuss this but before i start talking i should also add that my experience is limited to combat athletes which is an open loop, right? It's very heavy on decision-making and in contrast to a fixed scale like running or swimming or something like that. So my experience, of course, is limited to to combat. And this is what I'm going to talk about. Um, And in my experience, yeah, we did all these testing. I've done heaps of them just because first I had access to a world-class laboratory. And to me, it would be a shame not to take uh, advantage of it and try to explore 
just for, for one, just out of curiosity, because I'd like to see, are these uh, skills uh, independent of, it, of each other? Are they correlated? What's happening? I actually never really knew, and, and there isn't that much uh, literature out there. So one of the things I've done with the athletes that I've worked with is just try to test as much as as uh, physical qualities as I can. So we test for their maximal jumps, their mid-tie pull, and all these many other variables, their punching performance. And uh, what I've learned, especially with the athletes that I've worked with on a regular basis, that the main benefit of these, uh, of the, of these tests is are mainly psychological. Because if I be completely honest, it's not that based on these results, I change my program to, to a large extent, if anything at all. They were very insightful for all of us, and it was part of a process, part of even of a bonding process, because we were working together towards a goal. So, again, I think the benefits that they definitely existed were indirect. It's not that the, the, te the test result itself necessarily influenced what we were doing, but it made a stronger, a stronger bond, and it gave the athlete a lot of confidence. And again, as I said before, to me, that's one of the most important things, especially in combat. You want to feel very confident walking into a fight. But then if you ask me, did I do anything uh, with these uh, test results? If I knew that the mid-tie pull has increased or decreased by 5% or by 7% uh, compared to three months ago, uh, I really wouldn't change it that much. It's not to say that they didn't have some influence on me. They did, especially if the, if the results were quite extreme. So you mentioned that study that we conducted on uh, one of the boxers that I even, to this day, I work with him uh, via correspondence just because he was truly the best, the best athlete that I've worked with. Um, so we've monitored him in a many as many tests as you can imagine, really. We had him do a VO2 max test, and we had him do a mid-type pull and jumping and punching performance, and we had him go through DEXAs and probably other tests that I forget right now. And we had him do that for 12 weeks leading up into a, an important uh, uh, state title fight. So we tested him roughly every two weeks leading to this uh, event, going through the training camp. And interestingly enough, we also tested him, I think, 10 days after his bout, in which he completely was completely rested, obviously. And what we found is that during the training camp, Essentially, everything that we, we tested just gradually decreased with every subsequent test. And that's partly because his intensity of the camp just kept going high and high and high. But what, And he won the fight easily. He's still undefeated as a professional boxer. But what was very interesting with this study is that when we tested him 10 days after, in which he was completely, uh, he was just relaxing, he wasn't training at all. Essentially, everything that we tested improved more than baseline. So that to us was an interesting indication. So actually, as I said, I was saying before that it, it didn't affect uh, our training. So this is an example that it did actually, because uh, when we saw the results, I was quite impressed. I couldn't believe that his punching performance all of a sudden went through the roof and his mid-tie pulls and his jumping for everything just went up so much. And uh, to begin with, I knew, I sensed that uh, that athlete, is uh is very sensitive to fatigue in contrast to other athletes that i've worked with at the time he needs a lot of time off not for, not because he's lazy he's, he couldn't be, he's again as i said before he's the best athlete i've ever worked with the most dedicated and serious so but just his body he needed to recover perhaps because he's just so explosive so every activity that he did 
were just 100%, everything was recruited to such an extent that perhaps he needed longer to recover from it. I'm not sure. This is just speculation. But based on, that res based on this study, which we also, by the way, published, um, we, we did change um, our structure of training slightly in the sense that we were a lot more aware of his uh, fatigability, which we, we had an indication that that was the case. But uh, this study definitely reinforced it because after 10 days and then seeing everything go through the roof and his VO2 max didn't even change that much. So it was like, well, this, this, we, we believe at least that this accounts for something. And the reason I say that we believe is because there's still the, the question of transferability. If he jumps higher, does it necessarily mean that he punches harder as well or that he'll make better decisions in the ring? Because at the end of the day, I've tested uh, elite athletes world-class athletes because uh that was the my blessing in the ais i got to test so many athletes from all around the world during training camps and i got a, i developed a good sense of what to expect which is that i can't expect anything because some of the best athletes in the world at least again in combat were so weak it was mind-blowing they were so weak some of them couldn't even jump uh couldn't even so i couldn't even use their data it was that extreme, yet some of them were uh, Commonwealth uh, uh, champions, right, and Olympians. So at least with, uh, and mainly with boxing, you couldn't really predict what's going to happen. I mean, there wasn't a clear relationship between the level that they boxed and their underpinning uh, physiological uh, abilities. It's not to say that some athletes are not phenomenal, but then you could also see athletes that are competing at the same level that are just completely untrained when it comes to the, these physical abilities, yet they still do well, which to me is an indication that while it's probably important uh, to, to, it, to an extent, it's not, uh, it's not that important as some may would like to believe. I think there are two, two, two things to be asked here. Do you believe they will be a better athletes if you improve those strength indicators? So if you improve this general physical preparedness or the other, I would say, other conclusion might be you know, you know, take it easy with all this, you know, strength conditioning stuff. Well, my answer to the first uh, question is yes. I think that if they improve these qualities, they will become better athletes and I'll even say better, better fighters. But, and it's a big but, for us to improve their abilities, that means that we have to take some of the limited training time that we have and and devoted to developing these qualities. So to me, it means, all right, we have a limited amount of training time. We have a limited amount of energy, of overall energy that we can expand and decide where we want to invest it. So yes, I do believe if we had an unlimited amount of energy or time, theoretically speaking, of course I would develop all these abilities. I'd make them as strong as I possibly can and as explosive as I po possibly can in an unspecific manner. You know, doing squats, deadlifts, and all these different things, right? But the question is this. For them to be doing the non-specific stuff, that means that we have to dedicate a unit of training for that, which I have to take from somewhere else. Perhaps from a specific... If I had an hour that otherwise I would be have, I would have them train their boxing, now it's an hour that we have to take that hour and spend on doing uh, non-specific training. And then we also got to find the time that they would need to recover from it. So my, my, my answer is yes, I think it would make them better athletes. And I think that it will transfer to an unknown amount. I'm not sure. I think it depends on many variables that are not quite clear. But I'm, su I'm sure it's going to have some sort of a positive effect. 
It might be larger in some methods. It might be smaller and very insignificant in others. But again, it just means that I have to, to steal that time from a different slot. And that's and, and now I'm talking as a coach, not even as a scientist. Now I'm just, uh, I put, just to, to be clear, I'm not talking as a scientist right now. And I know, by the way, that my view here is not a popular one, I should add. But this is just my experience, both as an athlete, as a coach, and even as a scientist who've tested so many athletes throughout the years, especially well, when I was in Australia. But if we put my scientific experience aside right now, when I worked with, when I coached competitive athletes, uh, especially the, the kickboxers that I've worked with, and they usually don't have an unlimited amount of time to train because some of them were not truly elite in the sense that they had a part-time job as well. So if they could only have a session a day, to me, to take some of that session and dedicate it to something that's non-specific, that it's not clear to me what the transfer is going to be, uh, I, I just didn't take that risk. It's not to say that they didn't do anything at all. They always did some non-specific stuff, right? But I think relative to other coaches, I didn't emphasize that as much because to me, I think that the decision-making skills and just practicing your sport is very safe because I know that the transfer is going to be 100%. If I have an athlete spar in the ring, then that's what he's going to do when he's fighting. There's a 100% transfer over here. In contrast, if I have him do a, a non-specific session that includes, I don't know, uh, squats or whatever else, then I only assume there's a hidden assumption that it's going to carry over. Now, yes, there is research in other fields that squatting will improve uh, running performance and jumping performance, but these uh, tests are non-specific. They're not, I'm sorry, they're, they're not decision-based skills. So the athletes that I work with, they have to decide in an instant of time whether they're going to throw a punch or move back or bob or wave or blow. You know, they have to learn to read their opponents. And as I said before, some of the best athletes in this field, at least again, boxing and kickboxing, they're definitely not the strongest. They're not the fittest. They're, they're even in some, some sense, the, the, uh, athlete, uh, coaches would consider them pathetic in terms of their physical abilities. What about? Yeah, they do so well. Yeah, yeah. What about looking at, at this particular issue from a via negativa approach using a Taleb stuff where having this GPP stuff might uh, prevent from a, a downside in this case, you know, getting injured, you know, all this, um, you know, cre creating variety and maybe reducing some of the, you know, specific movement or tissue overload that, that happens if you do only you know, specific stuff. For example, if you are only doing, um, you know, combat conditioning, you might overload your, your joints in a, in a pretty much same way all the time, where if you implement some of the more general stuff, you might decrease this, uh, you know, specific tissue overload while also mm -hmm. getting some of the performance benefit. And again, 100%. talking about squats and all this stuff, you know, lifting, maybe... Uh, th there are actually two things. Maybe there is no, uh, or, or we are uncertain about the performance benefits in, in terms of increasing uh, punching power or whatever. Um, the thing with, with the strength training, you can easily see the progress. So athletes can easily see the progress and that, that might build the confidence saying, oh man, I, I got stronger in a squat, I got stronger in a bench press, I'm pretty much ready to go in a fight. So as you said, that might be indirect effect, but also... Uh, they might become more robust to to injuries, and uh, they might they might become more receptive to a specific training. So just just my just my uh, um, uh, viewpoint on you know using maybe a different um, you know via negativa approach as opposed to 
this should only increase and, and you the know, performance. And, and I just have to agree with you 100%. I just have to agree with you 100%. And that's the, the reason why, of course, I still do some of that. I still do some of that. Perhaps not as much or a lot less than what others that I've met or known or read do. But I definitely incorporate some of that. Now, how much? That's, that's an open question. And that's very athlete-specific and so forth. But I agree. I think that, that from the injury perspective point of view, there's no doubt about it. And then, of course, there's actually the potential that will improve performance as well. And then there's that confidence as well. And then there's also but what I also account for with my decisions is how uh, happy and enthusiastic they are to do these type of training as well. Because I do try to keep the athletes that I'm with relatively happy, uh, especially those who are training full time or twice a day. I wouldn't have them do too many sessions that they hate because my perspective is that I, I, I like to think that the athletes that I work with are responsible. If they're not, then I'm probably just not the best coach for them. And I'd happily tell someone, listen, I don't think we make a good match. I've done that before. Because I don't I don't like uh, to yell or to force someone to do someone. It's just not my personality. I, I might not be the best coach for everyone. But with the athletes that I work with, I like to ask them what they think. What they, you know, I, I do value their opinion very much so because I'm not inside their own bodies. I don't know what they... If, if that will make them more confident or if they, even if they tell me, listen, I feel that this is working for me. I think that uh, to me, this is worth a lot. This will change a, a lot of, of my decision-making processes. It makes sense. One thing that I, I, I stumbled upon as well as um, after I be became, a, I would say, a coach or working in a performance field. Um, for, for example, I, I went to a couple of you know, Muay Thai kickboxing practices and then Maybe you, you, you have um, three hours a week or maybe five hours a week of training, say three times a week you train and then uh, you do Muay Thai for like uh, 30 minutes and they make you puke for extra 30 minutes of doing, you know, conditioning. Mm. And then you're like, you know what, I came over to this practice to, to learn to fight uh, and I'm actually paying you and then you're making me do, you know, stupid intervals and burpees. And I'm like, and then it come to my mind. It's like I'm doing something similar with my athletes. So <laughs> it's just uh, mm. you know having the skin in the game. Pretty much, it's really really uh, revealing some of the stuff that is. that are bothering athletes. So and as you mentioned, that, sometimes that's, that's a real life. You know, we we have sometimes the researchers forget that stuff. You know, we have we are constrained with certain energy and time, and then we need to find the best cost benefit uh that's it stuff to, to put in in those buckets so uh, that's I'm, so I'm, true and the cost benefit uh uh definition is what i was missing this whole time that that's really that's the, the, the key question that should be asked because essentially every lo somewhat logical training program uh, intervention would lead to some positive effects some but that's not the only question that should be asked. It's not if something is good or not. It's like, well, yeah, this may be good, but what can I do instead that will lead to the best athlete that, that, I can, that I'm working with in a given unit of time that I have? Yeah, yeah I was watching um, a friend of mine, my, Mark Leichner, who was, um, uh, interviewed him a couple of times for a blog, and uh, he's an MMA coach over here. Uh, he has a similar philosophy, I would say. And he sent me a video of, um, I think, George St. Pierre's coach, I think he might be Israeli as well. I might be wrong. Um, so one of the stuff he mentioned is that, yeah, he believes in lifting heavy for our fighters. It's really good uh, benefit, but there's also cost because it takes uh, recovery. Uh, it, um, it, it makes you uh, tired for a next day or two, and that 
in those next day or two you are unable to do skillful practices of, of fighting yeah. so then you need to find some type of uh, um, I would say a middle ground where you're actually you know getting a benefit of lifting while also not pounding your body so you cannot do a specific sessions and what he found is yeah. that pretty much uh, dynamic effort you know lifting some maximal weights faster um, doing gymnastic stuff and now it's popular to do you know kettlebell stuff which honestly I'm I'm, I'm, I'm a big proponent recently um, because it doesn't take much of the you know pounding on the joints compared to yeah. uh, you know powerlifting. So you need to you need to see the big picture. You need to see all these components, interactions, and all that stuff, and and do a cost benefit uh, analysis for for each athlete, as you mentioned. And it's not to say just to, to to add to what you're saying. It's not to say that that there might not be a case in which even I would justify a period of heavy lifting that would actually take a good portion of the weekly training. There might be a situation like that. For example, if I'm working with an athlete that, that decided for various reasons to go up a weight class. So it, it does happen. But all I'm saying is that there is no uh, a shotgun approach uh, because, oh, you're working with kickboxers, therefore you need to do whichever program. To me, that doesn't exist because every athlete that I worked with had different circumstances and different needs. And then, of course, the, the question of how much time did they actually get to train. And I have to make these calculated calls. And I got to make sure. And, and, and to me, sometimes what's missing from this discussion is that, well, how much time do you actually have? And what is the best, what would this specific athlete benefit from the most? I'll give you just a short example. I worked uh, when I was now in Australia. And I worked with a very good uh, team. Uh, you've ever even met some of them. Uh, so there's one of them who's uh, a state titleist by now. He's, uh, he's been training for roughly two years. He's very good, uh, but still an up-and-comer, right? But he has a background in rugby. So he was a very heavy lifter. He's extremely strong, extremely powerful. So to me, his re strength requirements were not very high. He needed to improve his skill, not so much his strength. So it's not... I just didn't do as, as much with him. But then when I worked with some other athlete who I found to be weak and he lacked power in his shots, so we might emphasize this a bit more, but it's a very case by case. There is no one. I mean, the fact that someone does kickboxing doesn't, shouldn't tell you that much really in terms of what they need to do just because you, you, you name uh, the sport. It it's, it's a case by case approach. And you, to me, it's just like, all right, I, I always, at the end of the day, as a coach, I have to make a calculated decision of how I will milk the limited time that I have with the athlete to, to the max, leading up to, to, to a fight and calculating the fact that he might get injured and all these other things. They're just so complex, right? And you just got to make calculated guesses, educated guesses about what, what's, what's ideal for a given athlete in a given point of time. That reminded me of, of, the, of the post I made called uh, Grand Unified Theory of Training, which is pretty mm. much my philosophy. Um, and what, what it comes down to is is removing the rate limiter what's uh limiting a particular athlete is it a potential so do we need to increase his potential in this case you know improving strength or his ability to utilize that potential so in this case mm. skill but also do we need to add more things in so in, in this case using a via positive approach should we do more or we need to remove certain things that that are holding him down so it's pretty much four things that needs to be juggled with um, with a particular uh, scenario or, or, or the athlete. Uh, and also, here, here's also a, a question. I, I, a friend of mine asked me maybe a couple of months ago, 
Um, and this is quite interesting question. I'm not sure how to approach it or how to answer it. So he said he was coaching a couple of uh, track and field athletes or one particular girl, and she hit personal. I think she was a decathlete, or um, sorry, in the case of the girls, it's a is it called heptathlon with seven events, right? So mm. she hit personal best in each, pretty much. But he was wondering, like, what if I do if I did things differently? If I did things differently, would she hit higher personal bests? And that's always a a question that that that's bothering athletes. Could I have done things differently that mm. could improve the performance? And then I told him, you know what? You need to chill the fuck out. Uh, you know, she improved the performance. You need to relax. You know, you did the best thing you can do. Uh, try to learn from that and, you know, maybe improve for the next cycle. But it's always this small bug in your head as a coach. Yeah. It's like, if I did things differently, would, would this might end up, you know, different, better? Um, but then I was looking for some of the answers in different fields. Um, for example, like, you know, complex, complex system fields and stuff like that. And how, how the different businesses deal with this uncertainty stuff. And they pretty much, if, if, it's, if it's a progress, it's still a progress. You know, you just need to let it go pretty much. And that, that was my advice to him. But I'm um, not sure how you deal with, with this, you know, issue yourself as a coach. Man, these are great points, and I feel the same. I mean, it, it to me is very interesting sometimes wearing the si science cap, the scientific cap, and sometimes being the coach. And then, uh, as a scientist, I when I work with uh, some of the national coaches, I try to sell them ideas, and then sometimes I get a bit upset that they wouldn't be sold right away, or whether. But I tell them, listen, this is so good, you got to But then. When I was a coach myself, when I was wearing that cap, I was like, oh, I was very skeptical and I was very worried uh, because, you know, you, you got to make, uh, you have to be very accountable for what you do. You have to be very accountable. And, and I always ask these questions. I think it's healthy to ask them at least to the point that it's not really limiting you. But I'd always ask this, what, what should we have done different? What could we have done better? I mean, it's a very interesting challenge, especially in the combat sports, because let's say I prepare an athlete about 10 hours a week and he's going to fight uh, someone who trains 10 hours a week and let's say everything else being equal, it's essentially what I decide to do with our time is going to make a call because everything else being equal, it's how you milk those hours to the very best that's going to make the difference and then you ask yourself and you're still walking in the dark, like what should we be doing and, uh, and even if we're seeing results, I mean is it there's all these other variables that we can't account for. So, yeah, I, I, I've accepted the, the uncertainties involved. It doesn't make me any happier that I can't control everything, but at least there's not much that I can do about it. And I can understand your friend asking these questions, and I think it's healthy. Uh, as long as, as uncertainty is leading us to some extent, I think it just makes us better coaches because we just understand. It just makes us... It, it, it doesn't force us into a place that we feel too happy with what we're doing well there's probably always room to improve or enhance or like you said reduce something or change something there's always things to tweak especially because it's all a moving target because the athlete that you just trained after he achieved a certain goal like that athlete that your your uh, friend trains she's now a different athlete so now the next preparation is going to be a bit different she's aged she's different she won an award maybe there's more pressure on her so if something worked for you up until a certain point, there's no guarantee it's going to work again. 
Yeah, that's a wonderful um, point to make. Yeah, one thing also you you mentioned, and we we spoke about when I was in uh, Australia when I mentioned you. Um, what I met you, sorry, um, is the way you you approach programming the training. So back that time, I, I was uh, you know juggling with this agile stuff in my head, uh, and actually again dealing with uncertainty, uncertainties. And you already mentioned that um, you have limited amount of time, and you know you decide to put a lot of specific work that that gets you the most you know uh benefit for a given cost um but then you also mentioned that uh, y- your training sessions are pretty much similar uh which uh which is also interesting because you also mentioned that uh sometimes you don't know if if a certain athlete is coming for training and uh the best thing to deal with that uncertainty is to have every session i wouldn't say same but uh quite similar so you you might have yeah. given buckets or like a checklist you need to cover in each session, and then if if the guy misses one, it's not a big deal. So for example, yeah. if you if you spend whole session on a say a footwork and the guy misses that, then yeah. you know he misses the you know a lot of footwork session. But if you distribute the footwork on you know different uh, different sessions, so you know divide by n, then if he misses one, he's not a big deal. You know. Can you tell us something about that, you know, logic? Well, yeah, I think you you just explained it perfectly well. I mean, you see in combat sports that it's very common in different gyms to have a day that's dedicated to, I don't know, just bag work, a day that's dedicated to just sparring, a day that's dedicated to perhaps just footwork. And there's just too much risk because athletes... Uh, for various reasons, if I've got a group of 14, 15 athletes, it, it makes perfect sense that on an occasion that we're they're going to miss a session they have other things going on in their lives they might be sick there might be an issue at the house or whatever else right and it just happens all the time and then if they missed a whole session that was dedicated to a certain skill or a certain attribute then they're behind they're falling behind so that to me was a good enough reason to make sure that i'm i'm, I'm not dedicating certain days to a certain skill and i think it also sits quite well with the motor learning uh literature as well so not only is it safer, but it's also in line with uh, with uh, uh, motor learning. And, and that's always what I'm after, especially when I'm working with uh, skillful athletes. Not just we're trying to, we're not talking about fixed skills like running or jumping. It's just decision making. So to me, I always structured the, se- the sessions in a similar sense. It's not to say that we're doing the same thing, but the very cat- the categories are the same. So there's going to be some, every session is going to include some, let's say, heavy bag work. It's going to have a conditioning component. It's going to have some skill component. It's going to have some shadow boxing, maybe a variation of sparring. And then if, let's say, an athlete mi- misses a session, it's not the end of the world. Well, it's not to say that it would be the end of the world otherwise either, but it's going to be a lot harder to make up for it. It's just going to fall behind. Or, so that, that was just my approach, and I, I can justify it for these two reasons. First, it's safer. And second, I think it definitely sits in line with the motor learning. Uh, I mean, I'd rather have an athlete work 10 minutes a day uh, every day for seven days uh, a week or six days a week than have an athlete work on that skill for an hour once a week and then not do it for a whole week, for a whole week and repeat that. Hmm. I think it's a more stable way to, to uh, ingrain a skill. It's, it's, uh, it just, uh, and I think that the science is there to support it as well. So the, the, this is this is how I do it. 
this is this is uh, how we've been coaching. From a biological viewpoint, and I, I think I believe that biological and biomechanical viewpoints are pretty much dominating the sports science okay. or dominated yes. sports science for the last couple of decades. Uh, that would be the well, that would be a, a worse uh, scenario where, for example, the research by Isurin, research by, should I say quotation mark research or <laughs> research, anyway, <laughs> research, Verkhoshansky uh, as well, they show that rather than distributing load in, you know, divide by N in different buckets, uh, it, uh, you, you should rather focus or concentrate the training load on a given bucket and from a biological standpoint that's a better strategy while i believe that uh, from motor learning perspective which is starting luckily to dominate sports science and and um, and uh, planning programming practices and from dealing with uncertainty um that that's a better strategy so um depends what what's your you know worldview or what what uh, what viewpoint you are taking into account. So nowadays, I believe that um, dealing with uncertainty is more important than dealing with biology. And in this case, mm. biology in ide idealized scenarios uh, of, of the research. So in ideal scenarios uh, where you can actually predict, um, you know, distributions and all this stuff, you can predict... Um, how you're gonna train? You can uh, you can predict. Uh, you have a stable environment. Then then you can use these you know uh, bi biologically more favorable strategies. While in the real world you cannot because you don't know what's gonna happen, and then you need to deal with uncertainty. And in this case, the easiest heuristic to use or or, or the rule would be divide by n. Just split this. If I plan doing, say again, I'm gonna use a footwork example. If I plan doing that one hour a week rather than spending one session doing one hour the better the better scenario would be as you mentioned doing it uh split it equally in end sessions that you already have and um for, from um maybe from a motor learning perspective that might be better because you have distri distributed practice rather than a, a blocked yes. uh concentrated practice um and also from an uncertainty point um where some some athletes might be missing certain sessions, they, they might get in a pattern of missing maybe only Tuesdays. And oh, guess what? You know, we only have we only do yeah. our, you know footwork on Tuesdays, and I keep missing Tuesdays because I have a I don't know salsa lessons in the evening. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so uh, using heuristic divide by n again, I don't want to repeat myself. Is is better from a you know uncertainty point of view and motor learning but it's worse from a biological standpoint. Th that is true. And, and again, very, very well said. You always uh, have this ability in this chat of ours to, to conclude what I was trying to say, probably very disorganized in a very organized way. So you're doing me a, a big favor here. But yeah, I, I'm with you on that 100%. Now, I was sure, my only reserve will be that, well, perhaps if I'm trying to enhance, I mean, what I'm saying is limited to the skill training and uh, you know the combat specific stuff. Now I don't I don't know if what I'm saying is or isn't true or would be the case if the goal is I don't know hypertrophy or or something like that a biological adaptation. It may be the case I don't know. To the best of my knowledge, but the uh, Vershonsky and, and these fellas they mainly uh, their points are mainly geared towards strength and power adaptations. 
rather than skill adaptation. So they do, in a sense, conflict. Uh, but like you said, I, I, I like to distribute my my uh, sessions as much as I can. And also, I also let you know that it led to a very interesting, I, I, I found to be an interesting strategy as well, because now that I've distributed everything, Instead of just having a day off for everyone, so let's say we train uh, Mondays to Thursdays and take Friday off because that's the day that we take off. Instead of that, uh, I've, I've just, especially as we prepare athletes to uh, to competitions, what I just have them do, I just give them uh, uh, what we call the three card rules. So we d- decide on a on a on a period. Let's say it's a four week period on which they train twice a day towards a competition. And instead of, of de- planning ahead of time which day is going to be their day off within that, they just get to three cards they can use whenever they choose to. They don't owe any explanations to me as a coach. They can just pull and say, listen, I'm not going to come in tomorrow. I'm just taking the day off because this, this, and that. And I was like, 100%, you don't even owe me an explanation. You got to choose one of your three cards, and then you got three of them leading up to the competition. Did, did instead you of trying- stole that from me? <laughs> did, did I? I may have. I man, everything I do, I just steal from and then modify it slightly. So it might very well be the case. But I'm happy to hear that you're the one using it, and then there's a good chance that I've stole it from you without, with me being uh, unconscious of it. I didn't um, know that you would do I that think, too. I, I believe I, I wrote a, a blog piece about it. Um, I had that same idea when I was in in Sweden again, um, uh, because as you mentioned earlier, you give you give a decision-making to, to the athlete. And I mentioned to the, to the coach, head coach back then, why don't we give, I call it no question asked, uh, day off. So they can have um, maybe three, three no question asked days off uh, in a month. Or maybe, you know, you, you, you can decide with the group. You don't need to tell them the rules. You can say, uh, what, what would be the best strategy for you guys? And then you can have uh, guys from the group saying, oh, uh, we, we, we need three. Or whatever, and then you, they can just pull it out. And but uh, then you can put certain constraints. Say like you cannot do it. Uh, you, you need mm-hmm. to announce it a day before because we need to organize the practice. Um, things like that, and you have three, three, uh, um, as you say, three cards per month or predefined period. And then also you can say um, you collect wellness, whatever. And then you can say the guys who, who have um, 100% compliance with the wellness, they can get extra day off, like extra card they can yeah. use. They can, And then you, you can also decide, are the cards going to be accumulated or not? Or they're going to be a reset every month or something like that. Uh, but again, what I believe is this needs to be discussed with the group. There, there needs to be a transparency with the group. There's no point mm-hmm. in hiding certain strategies as a, as a leadership and then just you know surprising the boys or girls with with uh, with some stupid rules they they were not uh, aware of yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah so that that's one of the things but that's quite interesting because you also give give athletes uh, uh, some type of freedom or or uh, um, ability to actually decide which is you know quite good and, uh, and you you get a lot of benefit and you're only losing one day but even with that some some of the coaches freak out which is you know amazing it is, and at the end of the day, to me, based on my perception of it, is that the athletes, again, my, my perception, my my big initiative, when I start working with an athlete, my assumption is that they're a responsible athlete, that they're going to do everything in their powers to achieve their goals. 
And if that's not, if my assumption is wrong, then as I said before, I don't think that I'm the suited coach for that athlete. He might need someone else. But according to my philosophy, I, I, I like to coach alongside the athlete, not not tell them exactly what to do, no questions asked, which is very still nowadays very common. You do as I say, I know what's best for you. It's like, man, I don't know what's best for you. We can work together and try to find a solution and try to to let the program emerge and unfold according to our understanding of you as an athlete and how you respond to different things. I don't really know exactly what's going to happen. And this is why I think I try to use as much input from the athlete as I can. To me, that just makes perfect sense instead of just letting him or her know what to do without their... And then to me, this this is a very dangerous uh, way of coaching because then the athlete just becomes disassociated from their feelings, from their sensations, because it doesn't matter because I'll still just let them know what to do, irrespective of their perception, which takes away the responsibility from them. And I think a lot of very useful information uh, is being missed, just being thrown to the trash because of that uh, approach. And I think sometimes just coaches need to feel that they're uh, contributing a lot. And this is what leads them to, to coach in a certain way, because it just makes them feel very powerful and uh and impactful and and i can see where that might come from i can i do uh because sometimes being a coach you feel you don't feel as much gratitude as you think you should i know that i felt that too but at the end of the day just discounting what the athlete has to say their perceptions and their sensations to me is a horrible mistake this is why again i like to work with the athletes and being very transparent about everything and i like telling them to very upfront i just don't know Let's maybe ask someone else, or what do you think? And initially, based on my experience working with athletes, they found that, to begin with, quite bizarre because they're not used to it. But once they get accustomed to it, I find they're very receptive and motivated, and then the information I can gather from them is actually very useful for us because at the end of the day, as a coach, with the most experience and the most education, you're still not inside the athlete's body or mind. You don't feel what they feel. They're the one who's getting in the ring or get going on the field. And to me, just not, not accounting for what they think, feel that we should do is a, is a horrible mistake. I agree completely with that. But we need to take culture into account. So, for example, you know, working in Serbian sport, um, if you come as a coach, like let's say you come in a soccer and then you, you, you step up in front of the, in front of the group and then you say, you know what? I'm, I don't know what I'm, what I'm gonna do with you. I'm gonna, you know, decide on a go, and I'll, I'm gonna ask you. And then, in certain cultures, they're gonna be, wow, this coach is amazing. He, he's he, he's gonna he's trusting us and all that stuff. And then um, you might end up asking actual players, you know, what they think about certain tactics, whatever, because they are actually on the pitch. You might ask him, you know, I would say, a, a older athletes, a more experienced athlete, what. You know, what's your thought about this? Uh, should we change this? Or, you know, just keep them in the loop pretty much because they are actually on the pitch. They see more than you. Uh, but in some cultures, that might actually backfire. For example, in Serbia, I'm pretty certain the, the athletes might say, you know, this guy doesn't know shit. No, he's going to ask us. They're going to laugh. And, uh, you know, it's just different culture, different, you know, maybe, maybe within a good organization, things might move forward and you know they they might start realizing this type of approach but in certain you know as i said in in certain cultures that might be the worst thing you can do to yourself as a coach just trusting players i mean you 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 do trust them but 
it might be a continuum. So again, I believe that uh, the the sign of a good leader is flexibility, just adapting to a mm -hmm. culture to he's dealing with. So if you're dealing with that type of culture, you're gonna you're gonna be more restrictive. You're gonna tell them, you know, I want you to do this, this, and this, but you're gonna kind of read between the lines pretty much. Uh, yeah. And then the athletes gonna appreciate you. But if you're dealing with athletes who are more uh, trustworthy, they want to be asked, they want to be involved. You know, you you ask them, you involve them. You're gonna survive as a coach that way. So it's again, I I'm pretty much along those lines. But um, you know, like, culture and experience tell me you know different stories. <laughs> so, man, I'll tell you what. Again, uh, I'm I'm. There's no disagreement here. And perhaps I should have been clear with what I was, uh, with the way I was, was explaining myself. But I'm I'm 100% with you on that. There's not only I would even say not only just cultural differences, but there's just even within a specific culture, within a certain culture, there's different athletes that might respond to it a bit differently. So of course not. And then also at the end of the day, you're still the coach, and you still have to be accountable, and you have to be responsible for what's happening. Of course, I can't pass all the responsibility to the athletes, but over time. Being sensitive to the culture and the athletes and every other factors as well, I think it's good to strive to have the athletes involved to, to the degree that you're not going to lose respect because of that. And oh, in fact, yeah. try to achieve the opposite. As long as that's you're balancing balancing that, I think that's that's a good strategy to strive for. Uh, and of course, it, 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 the, uh, the amount of success of doing that will depend on all these other variables. So it's not uh, a everything or nothing approach yeah so there's of course degrees and how you do it but at the end of the day I, i'm and i'm a believer that you should that one should strive to involve the athlete and definitely try to milk them for as much as you can for information that will help you uh, guide the structure of the training and so forth yeah, yeah i agree completely um it reminds me of, of uh, my experience when i was starting up um Coaching guy, coaching soccer guys in the gym. Um, you know, I believe in uh, in a saying. You know, give a man a fish, and you know, feed him for a day, and teach him how to actually fish, and you you feed him for a lifetime. And then I say, mm. okay, I'm gonna explain to these guys. You know, how what's the progressive overload? You know, what they should be doing in the gym, and then I let them you know do the stuff, and that backfired completely. You know, they they just didn't give a fuck. Pretty much, I'm gonna swear yeah. a lot. Uh, because I gave them freedom, I gave them. A, I told them, a, "Why don't you guys carry your training log, and you know, you you write what you did last time, and you know, next time you try to beat it," which is quite you know a common strategy in you know a lot of strength training programs. But then I, I, some of the guys were you know couldn't care less. They they forgot the logs. You know, they were just you know fucking around in the gym, not lifting heavy, and then you know you realize you know this is not. This is not the best strategy for this group. It might work in another group, but for this group, it's it's the worst thing you can do to yourself. So then or, I decided. Or perhaps it's not. Perhaps it was also not the best timing as well. Exactly. I'll right. just so add that as well. Maybe you, you need to start restrictive and then loose yeah. up, loosen up, rather than trying to be yeah. uh, really loose and then try to tighten up. Which is, I think, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a worse strategy as a, as a leader. Yeah. Definitely. I think you're right. I think you're 100% right. If you had to make a decision, definitely be more restrictive to begin with. Gain some respect, gain a bit of structure, and then develop up. a sense of what's happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and then loosen up. Yeah. Other, other way is nearly impossible to do without yeah, any yeah, yeah. major backfires. Uh, you, you were really that, good. You were really cool last week. Now, what, what's this? 
So, <laughs> yeah. Again, again, life, life, uh, life example. We in high school we had, um, we had, um, I don't know how you call it, like um, one professor who was in charge of your class. Oh, so he's taking you, you know, for your high school. He's like a head head teacher. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not 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 sure what's the English term. So he he was, he yes. was right from the actually he wasn't right from the college, but he was um, he was working in an industry, and then he 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 started uh, working as a teacher. And he took our class as a as a class leader, and then he kept changing leadership styles. Like one year he's a friend with us, uh, like I'm I'm your friend, and you know we're gonna you know deal with this, and then we we behave like um, you know animals, <laughs> what uh, high you know high school guys do. Uh, and then we took advantage of it. And then he next year he was like, no, I'm um, I'm gonna become a, like a Hitler, you know, I'm gonna you know be really restrictive. And then on the last year, he finally found a, a, a best leadership practice with us. But the thing is, like, he kept changing leadership practices. And they were like, what the hell is he doing? Like, if, if he started restrict, really restrictive and then loosen up over time, yeah. when, you know, when he, when he gets to know us and when we get to know him, uh, might work much better than, than, you know, switching completely. Yeah. And then there's unpredictability as well, which just puts you on your toes the whole time. If you some, can't know how the, he's going to respond. Some of the coaches actually use that stuff. So, pretty tricky. So. Uh, yeah, it doesn't sound like the best strategy, but at least it's an interesting one, I suppose. Yeah, let's let's wrap this uh, interesting conversation up. Um, yeah. Usually finish with some of the recommendations of, you know, books and uh, good resources on uh, what are you currently reading? You know, what are you suggesting uh, to the listeners um, to read? Um, well, I, I, I do have one specific recommendation, but before that, I'll just give a general recommendation. And I think uh, that you just demonstrated it throughout our whole conversation is that in our field and the exercise science or exercise just coaching field, what of tended to do with time is just step outside our field and just try to use analogies in other fields and try to see what others are doing. For me, I, I read a lot of psychology, a lot of medicine, just understand how things are working there. And, and I get a lot of good examples and analogies that make me think, and then I try to implement or transfer them to our field. So I think over time, I've been reading less and less about exercise science per se, and more about just other aspects. And I think irrespective of what they are, if your goal is to improve yourself as a coach uh, or as a scientist in, in the exercise field, I think, at least from my perspective, it has done nothing but improve my, uh, my thinking or my coaching. So that's uh, my general recommendation, almost irrespective of what it is that you'd be reading. That's uh, a general recommendation that, again, you... Every example or nearly every second example you provided was just from a different world. And I think it, it made the point very clear with your Google example, with your teaching example and so forth. So that's what I'm trying to allude to. That's number one. And the second book that I've been reading uh, lately and has a tremendous impact on my thinking is called uh, The Philosophy of Evidence-Based Medicine. And I forgot the name of the author. I think it's Jeremy... Um, but I'm not sure about the, the, the name right now. It skips uh, my memory. It's a really good book. It got me thinking a lot about causality, about types of research, 
um, and, and it was just wonderful. And I think it. Uh, I, I'm reading it now for the second time. It's only roughly 200 pages. The name may sound intimidating, but it's really not. It's a friendly, uh, friendly book that doesn't depend on a lot of prior knowledge. Um, I know that you, Maladin, will, will really enjoy this book. So yeah, I just Google it. It's one it's, of those. It's uh, yeah. is it Jeremy Hovick? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So philosophy of evidence-based medicine by Jeremy Hovick. Yeah, and it's it's extremely interesting, and it alludes to a lot of what we discussed about today, especially everything to do with the science and causality and so forth. So, um, um, I can't recommend this book enough. It's one of the better ones I've read in recent years. That's so. Uh, this is my specific example. That's a great recommendation. Uh, where can uh, listeners find more about you and your work? I suppose right now it's mainly limited to my uh, Facebook account. Uh, you can follow me on my research gate as well, where I upload my, my studies. Uh, there's a few more uh, that have been submitted and should be published soon. So uh, I should change that in the near future is what I'm hoping to do. Maybe a website or maybe something, have a bit more of a official website that I can refer people to, to my work, maybe start something in English. But at uh, the time being, it's only limited to my Facebook. That's great. Israel Halperin. So I'd love to uh, engage, well, meet new people in this field. And uh, if someone agrees or disagrees with me of what I've said today, I'm sure there's going to be a few. I'm, I'm happy to hear the criticism and discuss it through. Thanks a lot, Israel. Um, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to chatting you again, hopefully soon. Um, maybe even visiting you in Israel. <laughs> yeah, you <laughs> should definitely good. do that. I'm going to be here for the time being. Tel Aviv is an amazing city. You're definitely more than welcome to uh, to meet up. It's only probably, what, two, three hours away from you as well. Flying, exactly right. Yeah. Thanks a lot, mate. Thank you, my good friend. It was good talking to you. To the